Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 218. Today's episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast is brought to you by the Positive Productivity Pod, created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success without burnout. The pod offers weekly group coaching sessions, online courses, a private member community, and tons more. To learn more about the pod and to sign up, visit PositiveProductivityPod.com. See you on the inside. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. I am so happy that you are here to join us today, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to our guest, Tom Singer. Hello. Tom, I had to, I had to sorry, that wasn't meant to go there. Tom, I we started talking about pushing the record button, yeah. and then I worried that I hadn't pushed the record button. <laughs> all right, it's all good. Awesome. Well, actually, no. Awesome editing team. You can leave that in because, hey, I forget things all the time and I forget what I've just said I've done like two seconds earlier. It, such is life. <laughs> Tom is the owner of New Year Publishing and is a speaker and MC. Tom, there's so much more to your story than this, including how you got on this path. Would you mind sharing more? And again, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And and you have a great show. I uh my path has been one that has been extremely eclectic. I started off in sort of a sales career. I was a fully commissioned, 100% commissioned salesperson, worked my way up into sort of an executive marketing position. Uh, and all the time, I always thought something wasn't right. I was very successful, but I just didn't feel I was doing the right thing. I always sort of second guessed what my bosses were doing. I always felt I should be working for myself, but I never knew what that looked like. And Back in the, I don't know, somewhere around, you know, a little after the early 2000s, if you will, I started getting fascinated with people who spoke for a living. And it was one of those things that I would go to as a sales and marketing guy, I'd go to a lot of conferences, and I would see these people on stage. And sometimes it was celebrities, but oftentimes it was just really talented, motivational people who were sharing their experiences. And I would watch them and think, that's a better job than I have. I, I want to do what they're doing. So I started studying the actual business side of what it was to be be a professional speaker. And I, I clamored that I wanted to figure out how to do it. I, I would speak for free at local rotary clubs and other business organizations. And what happened was I was on a ski trip with a couple of college buddies. And I was complaining about sort of, oh, I want to do this. I can't figure this out. And one of my friends pulled the car over into one of those rest stops. And he looked at me and said, I'm tired of the complaining do it. And I said, well, you'd have to write a book. You'd have to do this. He goes, what do you need to write a book? And I said, well, and this was before self-publishing was both easy and well accepted. And I had tried to get a publisher and nothing had sort of happened. And I said, well, I would need some money to be able to produce the book in a high quality level. And I would need an editor because I am the king of typos and grammar screw ups and things like that. And he looked at me and he said, how much money would you need? And I threw out a number. And this friend had been very successful. And he said, I don't mean you take this the wrong way, but that's not a big number. But for me, it was a big number. And then the other thing was his wife was a business communications consultant and editor. And he said, I'll give you the money and my wife will edit the book. Now you don't have that to complain about. What are you going to do? 
And the next day, he and his wife started, and I started New Year Publishing. And about eight months later, I released my first book, and then I started speaking more. And all of a sudden, it took a while, but one thing led to another. Uh, and in 2009, I was laid off during the recession, but I had already written several books. I was already speaking, and I decided after the layoff, that's it. I'm done with corporate America. I am going to go create my own path in the world and uh, just be a speaker and eventually a master of ceremonies and a facilitator. And I haven't looked back. It's been eight and a half years. And Tom, I was laid off from my job at the end of 2008. Same recession, you know, corporate job. <laughs> but I had been hoping to be laid off for some time. I had, I was going through my first bout of entrepreneurship and I'm going to call it a bout because it was not at all what I should have been doing. But I really wanted to be doing mm -hmm. it full time. I knew I wasn't supposed to be in that corporate job. Were you already hoping that you would be able to leave the corporate job, the sales job? So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that I was hoping to be laid off because I'd actually been laid off several times throughout my career. And, and by the way, I was never fired. I was always doing a, an OK job, if not a fine job. But I worked for a lot of companies and I'm, I'm in Austin, Texas, and it's been tied to the technology economy. And so the ups and downs of the tech world would bring these companies that I was with, uh, you know, they would come into the Austin market, then they would pull out oftentimes companies that serviced the technology companies and I would do the sales and we would be successful. But the company itself would either go out of business or they would pull out of Texas. And so I found myself out of work several times. So I was never looking for that to happen. However, I was trying to save up enough money so I, I could go off and try my hand in this speaking role. And I had an, a number in my head that I had to have $100,000 in the bank. And then I was going to take the leap. And when I got laid off, I had about $30,000 in the bank. And I wasn't ready yet, but there were no jobs in April 2009. So I just had to leap with the little bit of money I had. And I'll be honest, I ran through that money and I ran through about another 60 or 70,000 more on credit cards and loans from my dad and things like that, that uh, wasn't easy to, to stomach before the business turned around and got going. But uh, so I wasn't looking, I wasn't looking forward to it, but I wasn't opposed to it once it happened. How long would you say it took before it did turn around and start being income generating? So, I mean, I started generating some income because I was already speaking on the side. I already had written some books and I had a blog. It wasn't like I went, you know, from a, a corporate salary to zero. I actually was making a little bit of money on the side already, but nowhere near what I made enough to support my family. It took about three years where I, I my comment is I hemorrhaged cash for three years. I ran backwards every year and then I sort of leveled out. And for about another three years, and then the past three years has been when I started making money and was able to pay off the debt that I that I acquired. So it really took three years to get going, another three years to pay off the debt. I hear that. I officially started this business in 2012, and I would like to say it was 2012 that showed this measly uh, income to the business, but I'm pretty sure it was my whole 2013 profit was $5,000. And I was the primary <laughs> breadwinner of the family. Yeah, I'm the primary breadwinner. My, my, my wife works part time, but we have two mm -hmm. children. 
at the time they were they were school age. One's now in college, another in high school. But you know they're they're expensive, and and the life we did not do a big lifestyle hit. Uh, had we tightened our belt, we might have been able to do it somewhat debt free. But we continued to let the kids participate in in activities, and we continued to take a vacation. Uh, and and we decided that we weren't going to punish the kids for me taking a a stab at this entrepreneurship. And and I don't know that that was the smartest decision, but it's the decision that we made. And when you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, they leave out sort of those lean struggle days of their story. Or or if you look at them from afar, you just see what they're doing now. Very few people come forward and say, I hemorrhaged cash for three years, ran even for three, and took another three to pay it all off. That's a long run to go eight years before you can really say you're up and running. But I think that that's part of what it takes. Oh, it absolutely is. And I'm not, I, I won't hesitate a second to say I hemorrhaged money. I When we met, I don't know if you were in the room at that time, but I shared the story about how our water had been shut off and we had to, on that day it snowed. So my husband told the boys they had to bring snow in so I could use the toilet and they could go pee outside. But it was just something because we don't have credit cards. Well, we have one that has a $300 limit and there's only so much damage or good, depending on how you want to look at it, that you can do with a $300 limit on a credit card. So really, if it... When things got rough, that's just what happened. And you're right, though. A lot of people don't share the struggle. And unfortunately for a lot of entrepreneurs and and regardless of whether they're speakers or authors or, or service providers or any of the above or even e-commerce, a lot of them don't share the struggles and then it leaves their audience and their fan base to think, oh, they're an overnight success story. But in all actuality, that overnight success story took eight years, 10 years, five years, however long it took to get to where they are now, if they're even still sharing it. There's a lot of people out there, and I call them the guru class, and they want to position themselves as if magic fairy dust blew out of their butt. But the reality is to start a business, and there's exceptions. There are people who start and skyrocket right away. But I've interviewed for my podcast over 300 entrepreneurs, and whether it's on the show or whether when we're just chatting afterwards, everybody always tells me that it's a lot harder. The advice they always share is it's a lot harder than anybody told them it was going to be to start a business. So I try to be really straightforward about it, that in my path, uh, there have been a lot of potholes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I think it's funny that entrepreneurs leave. A lot of us leave our 40-hour weekday jobs to end up working 80 to 120 hours a week for ourselves. It's it's not all about fancy lunches and manicures and pedicures and golf matches. But, but I it will can, say it, it can turn into that. If you ask my kids, though, and I mean, I did work 24-7 for all practical purposes, and I interviewed my daughter one time on a, on a simulcast that I was doing. I was hosting a, uh, a broadcast for the at-home audience at a live conference. So a lot of people now, a lot of conferences will live stream their conferences. And instead of just showing the things on stage, uh, I do a, a program where myself and another speaker, we host during the, the coffee breaks, we host like a talk show for the at-home audience. And one of the guests didn't show up, and my daughter happened to be at that same conference with me, and it was a conference for the National Speakers Association. So I grabbed my daughter, put her in the chair, and I interviewed her. She was 18, about what is it like to be the child of a professional speaker? And she looked right at me and goes, well, you were gone a lot. And I thought, oh, my God, here we go. She's throwing me under the bus. And then she finished her sentence. She said, but when you were home, 
you were home. We were able to have breakfast together. You drove me to school. You could, you know, take me if I, you know, come see my my dance recitals and things like that. She said you were actually around more than my friends whose parents worked regular jobs because while you would be gone three and four days at a time, the five and six days that you were home in a row, you were right there and you were always available. And so, you know, while I did work all the time, there are trade-offs and flexibility that come with that, that, that I think are awesome. And, and I do every single Friday, if I'm in town, my uh, college sophomore and I go and go to Starbucks together before school. And we talk about what's going on in her life because I travel about 150 days a year. And yet on Fridays or whatever day of the week I'm home, we sit down one-on-one -on -one and just have a little daddy-daughter time. And she and I both appreciate that. And it sort of makes up for the fact that I am gone a lot. With you traveling so much, and I know you you just mentioned, I, I love that you do the Starbucks uh, before school. How do you make sure that relationships aren't crumbling while you're away? I mean, well, no, I don't I mean, know. Maybe they are. Um, but... <laughs> let me be a little bit more specific. Like I'm, I'm looking to travel a lot more in this next year. In this is not meant to be a pick Tom Singer's brain show, but I, I'm sure a lot of other listeners are wondering <laughs> too. My husband and I have a really strong marriage, and and he is my rock in my business. And I am concerned, you know, when I'm not here as much as I am. And Tom, I'm amazed, and you are inspiring that you are traveling 150 days a year. I mean, it it's inspiring to know that you are able to do it and and keep it all together. Well, mm -hmm. like, like I said, I assume I'm keeping it together. I think one of the advantages is, is I'm an extrovert and my wife is an introvert. So I think having a couple of days a week where I'm not there isn't necessarily a horrible thing that it's quiet around the uh -huh. house and that she has some downtime to recharge her batteries. But it wasn't always that way. Early on when the kids were little and they needed a lot more attention, I didn't travel this much, but even in a job, if I would have to go to a conference or something, it, it was stressful. Uh, now and and my my older daughter needed a lot more of my attention. She it wasn't a bad thing. She just liked a lot more of dad's attention. The younger daughter tends to be a little bit more independent. So if I'm around too much, she's like, leave me alone. So we just sort of worked it out. But uh, the older daughter left for college two years ago, and what we've realized is the three of us have just gotten into a pattern. And my older daughter and I used to talk a lot on uh, on either on the phone or by uh, FaceTime. My younger daughter doesn't like to talk on the phone or do FaceTime. So I have to text her and I have to push her that you have to answer me when I'm on the road if I text you about how your day was. And so we do that. But what she and I have done is we've carved out this Friday morning time mm -hmm. and she opens up and talks her head off on Friday morning. And that's sort of our special time. And if I'm going to be away on a Friday, we schedule it on Tuesday or whatever day that week I'm home. And I think in two years now of uh, freshman and sophomore year of high school, a year and a half, we've only missed two or three days where we haven't done it at least once during the week with my wife. Part of it is, is that she just has to be bought in that this is the life that we have. And we're now getting close about two years away from where she can start traveling with me more often. So, you know, I speak at conferences and I'm put up in really nice hotels that used to create a lot of problems because, you know, she would be like, oh, it must be nice to be at the Hotel Del Coronado, or it must be nice to be at the W in New York. Well, I might as well be in the Holiday Inn in some small town in Ohio. It, it really doesn't matter if I'm at the conference because I'm inside the hotel. And to be honest with you, all these hotel ballrooms start to look the same. So she had to realize that I'm not on a vacation every time I fly away. Once she came to realize that, oh, 
that's his job. He's at work and he's in you know a hotel and that's what he does. And because I'm an extrovert, I like being at the conferences. I like meeting new people. She would hate that. So she realizes that, that, that it is my job. So the other person has to be fully bought in in order to make it work. If, if she was thinking, oh, he's just off partying 150 days a year, that would destroy everything. But she understands that this is the chosen thing I've done to, to earn my living and I've been able to do it. It took a long time, but you know, I now earn what I'd make in a corporate marketing position again, if not a little more. And we have a ton of flexibility, but she has to be bought into it or it would destroy you know, everything. If, if, if the kids or my wife, you know, were resentful that I was gone, nothing that I do would make up for it. I love that you brought up how you can be in those fabulous hotels and you, you may see the actual hotel room for what, half an hour when you get up, maybe 15 minutes before you crash, before you fall asleep at the end of the day. Yeah. And I never see the city. I rarely see the cities that I'm in. Now, sometimes because if, I, if I'm speaking or I'm the master of ceremonies, there might be times in the calendar uh, on the agenda where I'm not needed. And, uh-oh, did you still hear me? Oh, I can still hear you. Yep. Oh, okay. Something has, has gone awry on my end, but as long as you can hear me, I can hear you. So um, let me see if I can figure out what it was. All right. Well, I've lost sound in one ear. Positive productivity, um, not about perfection. <laughs> it's it's not about perfection. Uh, but but a lot of times when I uh, am in these cities, I'll have like a free hour or two and I'll go out and I'll take some pictures and maybe I'll post them on Facebook. And for a long time, my wife and a lot of my friends were like, oh, must be nice. But it's not like I have a whole day in St. Louis. I just walked outside of the hotel and took a picture of the arch and then I posted a picture of it. And, you know, from the outside in, my life looks really glamorous, but really it's not quite that way. And the same can be said, I'm sure, for music, like famous rock stars and in actors and all the celebrities, they look like they have the glamorous life from the outside, but they're traveling and they're constantly busy. And it wasn't until I started doing a lot more myself that I realized, wow, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes that we don't have a clue about. Yeah. And you get stuck in an airport for nine hours. I mean, that is not at all sexy. I mean, it's just the way life is. You're just sitting in the airport waiting for your flight and you know, you're there for nine hours and that happens several times a year. And it's like, people say, Oh, so glamorous. Yeah. I had peanuts, you know, to eat today while I was on Mm -hmm. the tarmac for five hours. Tom, you also host a podcast. How did your podcast come to be? So I used to write a thing on my blog called cool things. My friends do. I got really tired after years and years of blogging about just writing about myself and things that interested me. So what I started doing was uh, just highlighting things that cool people I knew were doing. And it was just called cool things my friends do. And uh, I went to a conference and somebody said, if you ever feel like you're in a rut, go interview 50 really successful people. And I was thinking, oh, I'll interview them for my blog. I'll just do an interview series, kind of like what I do with cool things my friends do, but I'll just do it with entrepreneurs and successful people. And about that time, this was three and a half years ago, podcasts were really sort of popping And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do a podcast. I'll do 50 episodes. And now 315 episodes or more later, uh, the podcast is still going strong. So that's how it came about. Uh, I don't write so much on my blog anymore because I do two interviews a week uh, for the podcast. And that takes up most of that, that bandwidth that I used to have for writing. Are you traveling with your podcasting equipment? Uh, no, I usually do most of my podcasting uh, from uh, home. So I schedule around my travels. 
And then if I'm a little bit behind, I do have a microphone that plugs onto my iPhone. And occasionally when I'm on the road, if I have to punch out an episode, I will just record one on my phone of just me. It's not an interview one. I'll just do whatever topic is top of mind that I think is good for my audience. Uh, so occasionally I do some of those from a hotel room, but most of the interviews are done via Skype or Zoom. Uh, although sometimes I use that little microphone and do some in-person ones, but normally it's done done from home. Tom, with how busy you are, did you already have a, a good system before you got started for knowing what you would say yes to and what you would say no to? Or how did you... <laughs> <laughs> you you think I'm productive? I have a productivity system. That's so or cute. Or even you know I, you, you I'm with all your speaking engagements over the years or over the year over the years. How do you know what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to besides scheduling conflicts? Yeah, boy, I wish I knew. the The real answer is is that uh, I suck at sort of uh, attention management and time management, and I just pile a lot of things on, but. Uh, I've made it work for myself. Now, a couple of years back, I started saying no to a lot more stuff because I went to some seminar and some guru told me, oh, you have to say no because you need to free up your time. And I started saying no to the little things or some of those free speeches that I thought, oh, well, I now am an established speaker. I don't do free. you know. So I started saying no to a lot of things. And last year, about a year and a half ago, my business was somewhat flat. And I was really nervous that maybe I'd played out the life of who I was in this industry. And my wife said something very poignant. She said, what did you do when you were growing the business? Those first three years where you had very little business to where you got it up to a regular income. And then, you know, even sort of the next three years where you continued to grow it a little bit, what were you doing during the growth times that you haven't done the last two or three years that you've been flat? And I said, I said yes to everything. And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, I was so hungry. I wanted the experience as a speaker because I knew I'd read a thing in Speaker Magazine, which, by the way, is proof there is a magazine for everybody. I read a thing about 10 years ago in Speaker Magazine that said, you're never going to be great until you've been invited to do 300 speeches. That wasn't you put yourself on a stage. That wasn't you speak in your sales meeting at work. That was people invite you to be the featured guest at least 300 times. And after you've done 300 professional level speeches where you've been invited into someone else's uh, conference, you'll start kind of like the 10,000 hour theory. You'll start to get good at things. And so I said yes to everything. I mean, if it was a rotary club, they didn't have a budget, but of course I want to speak at your rotary club. You know, if it was, uh, uh, even if it was in Dallas or Houston, if they'd pay my expenses, of course I'd say yes. And my wife said, interesting, where does all your business come from? And 100% of it, for the most part, comes from word of mouth. Somebody sees me speak or someone they know has seen me and they said, wow. And my joke is they say, he sucks less than most speakers that we've had in the past. And they put me on the short list of people they interview. And I have a sales background. If people really sit down and talk to me and consider me, I close well over half of them. And she said, so you get on the short list because people see you speak and you're saying no when you have empty holes in your calendar. So my wife told me, start saying yes to everything. Don't worry about money anymore. You got too focused on money and you got flat. And so uh, about a little over a year ago, I started saying yes to everything, as long as it worked with my calendar. And I'm not going to travel to New York for free. And you can't book me today for April for less than full fee because that's a busy month. You know, but if it's August or December and you're a month out, pff, yeah, I'll, what, what do you got? You know, and I want it to be fair. It can't be you're paying somebody else and you're not paying me. I have, I have some parameters to make sure I'm not being taken advantage of. But I started saying yes, and I started getting on more stages. This year, I'll do over 80 presentations uh, in total. And at the same time, my income is up by 50%. 
So there's some correlation. All these people say, oh, you need to protect your time. Start saying no. And I did that. And my business fluttered out. All of a sudden, I started saying yes. And it's hard work. But all of a sudden, my business is on fire. So, you know, to answer your question, I, I think we spend too much time worrying about who we can say no to. And what I learned in the last year and a half is how can I find a way to say yes? Because if I say yes and we can have a win-win situation, that might spin off business. If I stay at home, no business gets spun off. And you just blew my mind in multiple ways. And I'm going to share a little backstory. I don't spend much time on Facebook at all. If listeners, if you message me on Facebook, you may not get a response for several days, if not a week. And last night I was looking through somebody's feed and the person said, I have a new package that I'm offering. It's 2,500 and you will be invoiced after you ask me if you can pick my brain. It sort of got underneath my skin a little bit because I, for two reasons. One, I understand how a lot of these pick, can I pick your brain for a moment? Questions like those can really add up. But at the same time, I have built amazing relationships with people who I have gotten on a short phone call with for the pick my brain session. Actually, I, I don't call it pick my brain. I call it a virtual coffee. So I love that you brought that up. You're, you're making me reevaluate. While there are things that I know I need to say no to, maybe there should be a little bit more leeway for the yeses. Well, and here's the thing with the pick the brain thing. If you go back and read my blog several years ago, I got all caught up in the whole idea of don't say to pick my brain. I'm a consultant. I charge people for my time. And then I realized how many calls am I really getting? And this was even years ago before the say yes to things. I've always said yes to people who want to learn about being a speaker or whatever. Now, if they want to meet me in person, they've got to do it at 7.30 in the morning at the Starbucks by my house. And I've had people go, oh, that's too far away. Well, that's too bad. That's when I'm available. I mean, I'm not bending my schedule. I'm not driving across town. You know, you can pay me if you want me to drive across town, but I'll always make time on the phone. Now, it might be early. It might be later in the day. Uh, today, I'm talking to somebody, you know, and the time that worked out for me was after seven o'clock at night. And they were like, great. But the reality is, is that so many people get caught up in finding ways to say no, that I think they're shortchanging themselves. And I think especially for people, it's one thing if you're famous or your phone is ringing off the hook. But I talk to a lot of people who have no business. They're not making money. They're not making They're not making $100,000 a year, much less a million. And they go, oh, I have to protect my time from these people who want to pick my brain. I have my IP. Well, you're not successful yet. So if someone wants to pick your brain, let them pick your brain. You know, I may change. If I became famous tomorrow, and that's not part of my business plan, I might have to change this if my phone was ringing 10 times a day. But I talk to people all the time who I know aren't doing what I'm doing, and they're like, oh, I get so many calls. And I'm like, how many a week? And they're like, oh, one or two. I'm like, you don't have time for one or two calls a week? You know, I, I think people are flattering themselves in, in false ways. So this is something I've become very passionate about, that I'll help anybody as long as they're not a jerk. Yeah, I'm into that. Today, I've been blown away. My calendar has six to eight calls in it. I am not an extrovert, Tom. I am very introverted. So six to eight calls leaves me exhausted at the end of the day. But if I know that there's value out of any of those, and now, especially with the podcast, if I know that there's value to be shared with the listeners, then I love doing it. What would be, 
your number one resource for somebody who was looking to start their speeding? Yeah, they're <laughs> clearly I could use this help too. Their speech, speeching. There's <laughs> try three. <clears throat> I'm available for hire as a speaker. Um, what would be your number one piece of advice for somebody who's looking to start their speaking career from scratch today? So I was given this advice, I don't know, more than 10 years ago, and that was get involved with the National Speakers Association. Now, they have rules around who can join, meaning that you have to have done so many speeches and you have to earn so much money. It's just sort of a benchmark to make sure that you're legit in the business. But you can attend their events as a non-member. And I talk to people all the time and they're like, oh, it's too expensive. Like people ask me, what, what should I do? I want to become a speaker. And I say, join the National Speakers Association or at least get yourself for the next two or three years to their national summer conference. And then I'll see these people three years later and they're doing nothing with their speaking business. And they're like, oh, it's hard. It didn't work out. And I'm like, did you ever go to two or three National Speakers Association national events? And they're like, no, it was too much money or I didn't have the time or someone else told me that there's a bunch of wannabe beginners that are in NSA. And I'm like, well, what the hell are you? You know, what do you mean there's too many beginners? Meet other people who are beginning and grow up together in the industry. I never would have been successful in this business. And and I'm not making a million dollars a year, but I'm making a legit income that I, you know, I don't need to tell it or brag it, but I'm making money that people make in a corporate setting, you know, if they have a good corporate job and maybe a little more than that. And I never would have gotten here if I hadn't joined and gotten extravagantly active in the National Speakers Association. And I go nuts about this because if you're a plumber, you would damn well better be a member of the National Plumbers Association. If you're a locksmith, get to the National Locksmiths Association and people go, oh, I don't really like my trade association. Well, if you don't have friends in the business who are successfully doing what you want to do, I don't know how you do it because from the outside looking in, the speaking business looks like something. Like if you're not a speaker and you want to be and you look at all these people on stage, you, you fill in a lot of the blanks in your head of how they're making money and you make a lot of assumptions. And there's really like 10 or 15 different speaking businesses and, and none of them are better or worse, but the business models are all different. And if you think they're all the same and you start churning your business out to look like Bobby's business – well, Bobby's business may not work for the type of topic that you have or the type of audiences you want to get in front of. So you need speaker friends, and I don't know any other place that you're going to find them than the National Speakers Association. And the next piece of advice is don't go try to buddy up to the people who are making a half million or a million dollars a year or who are famous because they don't need you as a friend. Go find the people who are just like you but who are ambitious and grow up together in the business and Eight years later, you'll look back and say, whoa, so I, I am an extrovert and I've been blessed. I've had some very cool people in my life forever. I just spent Thanksgiving weekend with my best friend from kindergarten, his wife and daughter, my, my wife and my youngest daughter and I stayed at their house for two nights and spent three days in Los Angeles just playing around. And he and I have been friends since we were five years old and we were roommates in college. So I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of friends in my life who've been friends forever. I mean, I call them forever friends. And I have a whole thing I speak about, about do you have forever friends and, and why it's important. But if you were to say, Tom, who are the 10 best friends you have right now in your life? Five of them would be people I know from the National Speakers Association, and I've only been a member for eight years. So that means that five people who've been great friends have been somehow, you know, I don't keep score, but somehow they've been demoted because five of the closest friends I've ever had are people I've met in the last four to eight years through the National Speakers Association. And what we do is we sort of form these little mastermind groups and these friendships. And there's people you can call and you can say, hey, I got this type of a client. 
if you're making it up in your head, you're either leaving money on the table or you're never going to understand how the business works. So I get asked that question a lot. And I get very passionate about it. If someone's listening to this and they think, I'd like to be a speaker, realize it's going to take you three to five years before it's going to be established. It's going to take a lot of work. And if you don't join the National Speakers Association and you're not famous, famous people have an entirely different business model. If you're not famous, I don't know how you're going to do it. Now, there's exception. There's people who are working a lot who've never set foot in NSA or set foot in it and hated it. And that's great. But I don't know. You're asking for my advice. I don't know any other way to do it than to get around people who are living the life you want to live. And in this case, the only place you're going to find a lot of them is the National Speakers Association. I... I have to say, I actually joined myself in September, at the end of September, early October, and I actually joined, I think they call it the Academy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. What city are you in? I'm in outside of Dayton, Ohio. Okay. And Ohio, they've got some great, uh, they've Mm -hmm. got a good chapter in that area and there's some good people. You know, it's kind of where you live if you're going to be able to have uh, some local stuff, because not every chapter is going to be great. But, you know, the Academy, both on a local level and the national level, can be fabulous because people are going to show you just some of those shortcuts. They're going to peel back that that onion and show you the core just a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm within a couple hours of Cincinnati and Columbus, so that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm in, within a couple hours of Indianapolis, even better. And I'm only five hours from Chicago. And when it comes to that, that's close enough if it if it advances me. But the Academy, and I will double check the name of that listeners, but there will be a link in the show notes if you're interested at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP218. The Academy is for the people who haven't had all the speaking experience like Tom or, or any of the, you know, that level of speaker. It's for the noobs. I'm just going to put it that way. It's for the noobs. Well, and- and I didn't go through the academy. I, I could have. I probably should have. But it wasn't my path. I just sort of jumped into the deep end and, and started, you know, started doing what I was doing. But the people I know who've done the academy, A, they've learned a lot. But B, that's how they've made those friendships. And and not everybody who you get to meet in the academy is going to succeed in the business. But I look back at, you know, five or six or eight people who over the last eight years, we've grown up together in the business. And now, you know, we're all established speakers that's the way you're going to do it. If, if you try to do it as a lone ranger, there's a lot of weird pitfalls that you're going to find. So, you know, again, there are people who will listen to this who will be like, yeah, I want to be a speaker, but I'm not going to take his advice. My answer is good luck when you're really successful. Come and tell me that I'm wrong. But in five years, if you're not a working speaker, don't say I didn't tell you. Right. I like how you also brought up mastermind and I'm going to throw into their accountability. Maybe you already brought that up. So if you did, I apologize. But I've realized that I've had great masterminds and I've also had not so great. There were people who were definitely Mm -hmm. on different timelines as me. And when you, if you are looking for an accountability partner or a mastermind, make sure they're at the same level, at the same pace. Because when you find somebody who's not working as hard or as fast and Tom, if you disagree, please chime in. But I found that I, I was holding myself back because I had such ambitious goals that I was almost slowing down by seeing the progress that they wanted to make from one to the next. Maybe that's not keeping myself accountable. But when I did find people who are trying to be at the same pace as I was, oh my gosh, it was like lighting a fire under my butt to keep on moving, you know, just 
to keep up. So four years ago, I was invited to join to join a mastermind group by another speaker who was putting together a group. At the time, it was five people. Four years later, there's four of us still still together. And she had been a part of another mastermind group. And the problem was every time they would meet, they would talk about what they were going to do. And there was one woman in the group who kept saying, uh, my goal between now and the next meeting, which was six months away, was I'm going to clean off my desk. And after a year and a half, she's like, that desk, just throw the whole thing in the fire. You know, come on, what's the problem? Whereas my friend would make a list of 10 things and she would get them all done. And other people in the group were like, you're making us feel bad. She had to quit that group because you can't be in a group where your success is making other people feel bad. So she formed a group with people who were not her friends. I mean, she barely knew any of us. She looked for people who scared her a little bit but who were ambitious and weren't necessarily her competition. And I would say all four of us have totally transformed our businesses in the last four years. And not all the credit, but some of the credit goes to the group. One of the guys went from, you know, a minor six-figure income where most of it was consulting and a little speaking to over a half million dollars a year all in speaking fees. And, you know, he used us as a sounding board and an accountability group to be able to to push his business forward. Uh, two other people in the group have totally transformed their topics and their audiences and are relaunching into much higher speaking uh, uh, audiences and, and levels of what they're doing. And then I have really matured my business through the advice that these people have given me. And so getting involved with a group where you can be committed. And, and the trick we did was we had to be, everybody had to be committed for a year. We did a monthly Zoom call. And then twice a year, we rented a house somewhere in the country and we would move into it for two days and we would just go deep into the business. And I talked to a lot of people who are like, oh, I just want to do the phone call one. Well, Putting the time and the money into each other is how we've built the relationship. And, and my, my, I have a couple other mastermind groups I participate in, but this main group, those people are like my siblings. I mean, I if we could stop meeting and they will always be part of my life. Uh, those three other people are as I'm as close to them as I am to my natural brothers. Uh, my kids think of them like extra aunts and uncles. We've stayed at each other's houses. Um, you know, we've shared you know, more personal stuff than you'd share with your average business associate. And if you can find the right group and you can create a real commitment and where you get excited when the other person excels, not jealous. So many groups are undermined because somebody in the group starts to climb out of the box and the other people want to be like lobsters and pull them back down and don't let them out of the box and grab them with their claws. When the one guy in our group started to really excel, we stood on the sidelines and cheered because we knew that he wasn't leaving us. He was just forging a path that we could follow. And so you have to get in a group with people where you have, you don't necessarily have to be on the same level financially or the same level of the ladder, but you have to be on the same level of the commitment and and the the purpose of being there that when any boat rises, the whole tide goes up. Thank you for saying that so well. See, that's why that's why you're the speaker. <laughs> 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 um, I, I may be an introvert, but I don't get speechless very often, but you just left me there. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm selling myself as a speaker right now, aren't I, Tom? <laughs> well, let me tell you, speakers, half of the speakers out there are introverts. Don't, don't, don't kid yourself that, you know, people who can be wizards on the stage, oftentimes one-on-one -on -one or in other situations, you know, can be socially awkward or, or, or just more of an introvert or just quiet. So I always laugh when people go, well, it's easy for you to be a speaker because you're an extrovert. No, there's, I don't think that has anything to do with it. It has to, it has a much different thing with just how do you use the stage as a way to share a message? Oh, absolutely. Tom, I have to confess 
I was scared of speaking for the longest time because not because I was afraid of losing my words, coincidentally, considering I just lost my words. However, I was actually scared of tripping onto the stage or falling off my well, shoes. I've done that. <laughs> and, I, and I don't even wear heels and I've fallen. Yeah. <laughs> However, I, I haven't fallen off the stage, but I've tripped. Well, the podcast has been amazing because as I've progressed through this journey and gone through bloopers, I mean, I've had bloopers on this episode already and sharing the bloopers, it's just part of life, you know, and I'm not scared about it anymore. Hey, I'll give them something to remember. So what's more important to me now is sharing the message. And if, if I can be a little bit entertaining, I mean, I'm not going to go and purposely fall off my shoes because I, I just wouldn't, I'm not coordinated enough to do that. I have two left feet. So even if I tried to fall off, it just wouldn't happen. But if it does, so what? I'm really not worried about it. So you've just given me so much to think about. And I wasn't even planning on talking this much about speaking. I don't know why. I, As listeners know, every every podcast episode is non-scripted here on Positive Productivity. So thank you. You have, you have fueled me. You have fueled chronic idea disorder, which is a dangerous thing in itself. So <laughs> thank you. Oh, actually, I do have one last question for you because I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking or asking or wondering the same thing. Is having a book before becoming a speaker essential in your opinion still? So the person who I told you uh, is making well over a half million dollars a year in speaking fees, he did a presentation at the National Speakers Association about what they, in air quotes, T-H-E-Y, what they tell you you have to do to be a speaker. And he just dismantled all of the rumors because he doesn't do any of them. And one of them is, oh, you have to have a book. He hasn't written a book. You know what he's done? He's written a workbook, which is just a three ring binder with some things people do. And he sells it for like $500. And then he asks people, what do you sell your book for? $21.95. Because you have to sell a lot of those to get to $500, don't you? So no, you don't have to have a book. Does it help? Sure. Does it help if it's written, if it's published by a massive New York publisher and you hit the New York Times bestseller list? Yes, it does. My books are published by the publishing company that I own, uh, and uh, they are not bestsellers, although two of them have sold over 20,000 copies, which in, you know, if you could sell over 20,000 copies, that would make any publisher at least somewhat happy. So some of my books have sold well, but uh, they're not on any New York Times bestseller list. And by the way, Anyone who says, oh, I'm an Amazon bestseller, that's BS. Any one of us can be an Amazon bestseller by having your grandma buy like four copies at three in the morning and then you get the screenshot where you're number one in your category. That is useless. To be a bestseller, you have to hit the New York Times bestseller list, the USA Today bestseller list, and maybe there's one or two others. So, but why lie? Why say, oh, I'm a bestseller when, you know, why? I've written a book. That's fine. And does, does having written 12 books open doors for me? Yeah, it does. Do I think that it's makes it easier? It's a box checker nowadays. I think when I started, it was more of a necessity. Nowadays, because everyone can write a book, everyone has. So it's no longer the differentiator. I think the thing you have to do if you want to be a paid professional speaker who's working and getting booked and getting rebooked by the same client over and over, that's, you know, that's another thing is it's one thing to get booked once. It's another thing for them to redo their agenda to put you on two years in a row. You have to be really good on the stage. And 
I hate to say that because then people go, oh, you're bragging. You're saying you're really good. I don't know if I'm really good or not, but the people I recommend and I refer speakers like there's no tomorrow. I refer every single client. If I'm booked directly, if I'm, if I'm booked through a bureau, I don't do this because that's not my client. That's the speakers bureau's client. But if I'm booked directly, which most of my bookings are direct, I tell every client, let me refer you one or two speakers for next year now that I know your audience. And I get a ton of people actual paid high dollar business. Not a lot, but I get a ton of people. I mean, 10 or 12 people a year that I refer probably get booked. And here's the deal. People are like, oh, why do you do that? Maybe they'll bring you back. They're more likely to bring me back because I'm trying to help them make their conference better next year. They're like, well, we should have you again. But I only refer people who I think are freaking great. Like, whoa, blow my socks off. I have a ton of people who are like, oh, I'd love you to refer me to your clients because we speak for the same type of people. And I've either ne never seen them speak or I've seen them speak. And I'm like, yeah, they're really kind of good. So I refer people where I say, wow, kapow, my shoes just flew off my feet. So if you want to be a business, just get Get on stage a lot, you know, give more than 300 speeches and watch the video of every one and study it and learn how to be good and learn how to get an audience excited and share that enthusiasm. Because if you're good, you're going to get booked, whether you have a book or not. Thank you for all of that. Listeners, stay tuned for a future episode on why it doesn't matter if you're an Amazon bestseller or not. Thank you for bringing up that point, because I'm fully aware that you can go to an obscure category and get number one. By selling one copy. Yeah, and the people, the people in the know, here's the other thing. People, I've, I've talked to people who say, oh, I'm a bestseller. I'm an Amazon bestseller. And they say, yeah, but most people don't. Like I talk about the fact that we all know that you can scam that system by buying 50 books in the middle of the night. And they're like, yeah, but the average person doesn't know. The person in the audience doesn't know. Yeah, but the meeting planners do. Mm -hmm. The people who are booking the higher paid speakers they know the difference between, you know, that. So, I mean, I'm just honest. Yeah, I own New Year Publishing. Yeah, I've written 12 books. And people say, are they any good? I say, read one. Here, I'll give you one. You know, read it. If you like it, good. If you don't, that's okay too. I'm just, I'm really straightforward about who I am. I know who I am. I'm comfortable in my skin. I don't have to pretend I'm something I'm not. You know, I've, I've, I've written some books and, you know, people seem to like them. But I don't have to pretend that I'm a bestseller because I'm not. Authenticity and honesty. There you go. Tom just summed it up. Thank you. Tom, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. You have fed my brain in so many ways. I'm going to have to bottle it up and save it for later. Chronic idea disorder. I have to focus on one thing at a time. Where can listeners find you online and connect with you and get to know more? I'm I'm on all the regular places. You can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, etc. But the easiest place is my website. It's Tom Singer, T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. Fabulous. Tom, what is one last piece of parting advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Be slow to anger and fast to forgive. So often people are like so quick to think someone's screwing them over and they get so mad and they point fingers and they gossip and they bitch and they complain. And the other person wasn't really even thinking that much about you. You get so mad thinking you've been wronged when in reality, the other person's just going through life and, and maybe it was a one, maybe you were wronged at a one and you turn it into a 10. Be slower to anger. Realize other people aren't thinking about you nearly as much as you think they are. And don't get mad at every little thing that happens until you have all the information. So it doesn't mean you can't get mad, but don't get mad fast. Do a little research. Let it sink in. Study it. Then decide if it's worthy of being mad. And the second thing is be fast to forgive. Unless somebody's done something horrible, and there's been a lot of horrible things in the news lately, you don't have to forgive everybody. 
But in cases where it's a friend and they've, you know, gossiped a little or they, you know, forgot to pick you up for lunch or whatever, just write it off as that's part of being human and just forgive them quickly. And I'll tell you what, if you're slow to anger and fast to forgive, you're going to live longer.